0: looking at who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What, what authority has the Father in heaven given him? And, and, and who is this Savior who has come to this earth? Now we're going to look at what has he come to do and what is he doing and where is he headed? And so from here on out, we're journeying to the cross with Jesus. From here until Easter, we will be looking at the remainder of the book of Mark and looking at how Jesus, how, how his life was shaped as, and, and how it unfolded as he got closer and closer and closer to the cross which we'll be able to uh, remember and celebrate at Easter. And so, again, if you will, uh, turn to Mark chapter 9 and, and, and follow along as I read for us uh, verses 2 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you, we praise you, we we celebrate the fact that you are a God who wants to be known. Lord, I I pray that as we look at this passage in Mark 9, that it would not just be an exercise of our minds, but it would truly be a, a transformation of our hearts, Lord, that you would form us as your people in the image of your son, Jesus, through our time in your word this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so our passage this morning it starts off after a six-day period of time where, where Mark kind of sets up these, there's two stories that are happening on either side of these six days. They're kind of in juxtaposition, two strange kind of stories or two stories that seem strange but that, that they would be connected through these six days. In Mark chapter 8, we, we read about the time that, that, that Peter declares, Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, right? And he's more than a teacher, he's more than a prophet, he's more than some miracle worker, as some people think, he's the Christ. He's the one we've been waiting for, right? So, so in, in that passage, we're, we're kind of, we kind of un, come to understand this clear declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, And then six days later, we have Mark 9, which opens with this strange and otherworldly sort of scene on a mountaintop in which Jesus is transformed in front of these three disciples in which his clothes are shining bright like no launderer and all the earth could, could bleach and make as white as it was. Six days connect these two moments, and I think Mark connects them this way for a couple of very specific reasons. If you remember from last week, shortly after Peter had declared that, Jesus, you are the, the Messiah, you're the one we've been waiting for, uh, Jesus takes that time to teach his disciples, well, yes, that's true, but also I'm one who, who, who is here to suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. Not only am I here to do that, it's necessary that the Son of Man the Christ, the Messiah, the one you say I am, it's necessary that I must suffer, and be killed, and rise again. Apparently that wasn't necessarily the the picture of a conquering hero that Peter and the disciples had in mind because when Peter tries to rebuke Jesus and say, no, 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 you're way off the mark, Jesus, kind of gets turned on Peter, and and Peter ends up getting rebuked as a result. And so from that scene, fast forward six days in in Mark's gospel, and this very same Peter, as well as James and John, walk with Jesus up this mountaintop to witness the scene. Now, by the way, if you're ever wondering, if you're curious about what the gospel might look like, practically speaking, in our lives, there's a great picture of it, right? uh, Peter... Kind of opens his mouth prematurely, says something stupid and arrogant, gets rebuked by Jesus, and six days later, Peter is selected out of a group of disciples to come along with Jesus and see something very special and unique. You might say, well, Peter, you're not deserving of this moment, but the gospel, the gospel which Jesus embodies, says the very one we think is unworthy of a moment like this is worthy because Jesus deemed him worthy. And so the gospel tells us, the, the, the story tells us that, that that Peter and James and John are given a very unique opportunity to, to get a small preview of the life ahead of them, the life to come. Verse 2 tells us that, that, that Jesus was transfigured, which in the Greek means that he literally changed into another form, right? This is This is not just like, you know, when When I step up on this podium, there's a glare that comes off my head, and you think, wow, Dan, you've been transfigured. This is not that, right? What's actually happening here is they're witnessing some otherworldly picture in front of them. They have been transformed. Not only is it miraculous that we see Elijah and Moses, two Old Testament figures that had lived long ago and had long ago gone on to live with their Heavenly Father, but, but also you see Jesus, who they had just walked up this mountain with, transformed in their, in, in their presence. The, the way that his clothes are described, they shine brighter, a brighter white than anyone had ever seen. Right, that, that should tell us there, there's something very unique and special and miraculous about this moment. Now, if you want an understanding of what the disciples must have been thinking at this point, I'd encourage you to look no further than Peter, right? Peter, there's no, no pretenses with Peter. Like, Peter is, what you see is what you get. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He says the first thing that comes to his mind. He, he, Peter's, I love Peter, right? Peter's terrified, Mark tells us. And, 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 he, and he's overwhelmed. And, and, and so what does he do? He says, hey, Jesus, let's, let's, let's make three tents, One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. And and, and essentially, let's stay right here. Man, I don't want this moment to end. Let's stay right here, Jesus. We'll make three tents. Now, these aren't just any tents. Because in the language that we have here, these these are special tents. These are tabernacles that Peter wants to build. This is not just like a place for them to get out of the weather. These are places for the presence of these uh, these people to dwell in and be in and and where Peter can stay with them and and be in their presence. But the reason why Peter is thinking this is because he's starting to put some pieces together. See, in those days, the average Jewish Jewish person would have looked at the scene uh, of seeing uh, Elijah and Moses and Jesus stand together and immediately they would have thought of, of what the scriptures had predicted of the end. Right? Moses and Elijah were both these eschatological figures. They were figures that were promised to, to show up in the end of days, in, in, in the end times. And, and, and we see it you know, in, in Deuteronomy 18, before Moses leaves. He promises the people of Israel that, that, that the, the Lord will send one like Moses who will lead his people. One greater than Moses who will lead his people. In in Malachi 4, we're told, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. See, Peter's sitting here saying, Hey, we see Elijah, right, later on in the passage He'll he'll ask Jesus about Elijah, and Jesus will say, hey, you're missing it. Elijah has already come. For Jesus, Elijah was John the Baptist. Elijah was John. John the Baptist came in preparation for the ministry of Jesus, pointing the way to one who would save all people, the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And so for Peter, he's looking at this scene happening here between Elijah and Moses meeting with Jesus. And his mind is going to this place of a time of waiting has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's now. Let's build some tabernacles for the presence of these people and let's stay here. Let's be in their presence. Let's forget all those other things you're talking about doing, Jesus. Let's just stay right here. See, Peter wants to set up a place of of worship. right? The, The tabernacle in the Old Testament, was a place for God's presence to go with his people in the wilderness. A place for the people of God to draw near, to be in God's presence, to be with God as they wandered through the wilderness. It was a place of worship. And Peter's like, let's do that now. Let's just stay here. But before anything could be done about Peter's idea, something strange happens, right? This cloud envelops them. This cloud envelops him and a voice out of the cloud declares, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then we're told just like that, this terrifying incident is over. And and Peter and James and John are standing with Jesus only. No more Moses, no more Elijah, Jesus only. So what, what are we to make of all this? What are we to think about what we're witnessing, what we're hearing described for us through Mark chapter 9? Well, first of all, I think by connecting Jesus' teaching on the suffering son of man in chapter 8, the one who it was necessary that he suffer and be rejected and killed and then rise again, by connecting that teaching with six days later, this transfiguration, Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God, the, the very one who would suffer and die and rise again. Right? For Mark, it, it was important that we see not just this teaching that Jesus was giving his disciples to help them understand that, that the, the very Christ, the Messiah, who Jesus was, would suffer and die and uh, suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. He would connect it with this glorious picture of eternity, of this, of this place, this shining, bright, glowing place where there is peace and, and in heaven with God. He's connecting these two events so that we would understand the one common thread is Jesus. Jesus only. Jesus is the Son of Man and also the Christ, the one who will be with us in glory for all eternity? You, 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 again, as we've been journeying through the book of Mark, you may remember that the first half of the book of Mark, Jesus has been revealing who he is. He's been showing his authority, his, 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 the role that he filled in, the, in, in God's plan as he healed the sick, as he cast out demons, as he taught his disciples on the way. But now we see him as the son of God who uses the authority the father has given him to suffer and die. And it doesn't make sense to us, does it? It doesn't make sense apart from us knowing. Like we stand on this side of eternity. We're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's what the Bible says. But to, uh, to a mind that is not yet introduced to this story that is the scriptures, it doesn't make sense that the hero must suffer and die for glory to be achieved, for eternity, for maturity, for wholeness, for the peace that we all long for to be accomplished. And so Mark makes it clear to us in connecting these two stories that Jesus is the son of God, the son of man, the one that God has chosen to be the savior, the the Messiah. And not only that he might suffer and die, but that also we might share with him in the glory that is ours to be one day as Peter, James, and John witnessed in seeing Elijah and Moses and Jesus together. Well, secondly, I think what we should make of this is that like Peter, Mark is showing us our need to rightly understand why Jesus wants his disciples to share this moment with him. Right? There, there's a reason why Jesus said, you, Peter, James, John, come with me. We're gonna to go to the top of this mountain together. There's a reason why in, in our text, Mark clarifies, uh, even in verse two, that, that Jesus pulled these three disciples out of the larger group and said, come on, let me lead you up to this mountain to a higher place. There's a reason why Jesus chose to be transfigured in front of these three disciples for their benefit, but also for our benefit. Because after the Son of Man is risen from the dead, these three disciples can testify to what they witnessed on that high mountain. They could tell us about the glory that they saw in eternity with Jesus and Elijah and Moses standing together on top of that high mountain. See, Jesus is transfigured for our benefit. But why? What, what, what was Jesus doing? I, I think, I believe, that Jesus was preparing his disciples for the reality of what life is like. In, in a sense, he's saying, hey, this glory is to be yours one day, but not before you walk through the pain and the difficulty and the reality that is the suffering in this present world. So I think... Jesus wanted to give his disciples encouragement about what comes before the glory that he was showing them that awaits on the other side. Church, it's true that we are saved by grace through faith. It is true that we are not, we will not one day be saved, but we are saved today. We are, we are God's children today through faith in Jesus Christ. But we will not arrive at the glory and the maturity and the wholeness that's promised to us except by walking the path of suffering in this present world by faith. And what Jesus is transferred. Transfiguration shows us the hope that it offers us is that the suffering in this present world is not the end. That there is more to this life than meets the eye. In fact, our suffering in this present world shares a very close relationship with Jesus' glory. He's not just saying, hey, one day you're going to be in glory with Jesus one day you're going to be like Elijah and Moses hanging out with this glorified Savior for all eternity. He's saying that there's a connection between that glory one day and our present sufferings. And if we want to share with Jesus in his glory, then the path we follow in this present life is marked by suffering. Hopefully you remember that at the end of chapter 8, Jesus made it clear that that He says, it's necessary for the Son of Man to suffer and be rejected and killed and rise again. I mean, the the reality of what the scriptures teach us. If the wages of sin is death, so his death would pay that price for us. That was his sacrifice. His substitution for our debt was paid when he suffered and died that we might share with him in the new life that he offers us. But Jesus also made it clear in chapter 8 that if we were to share in the life of Jesus, we will also share in that suffering. In Romans 8, Paul describes this relationship between suffering and glory and sharing in Jesus' glory like this. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 16 to 18. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, what, what Paul teaches us, what Jesus is trying to show us, what Mark is revealing to us in, in the end of chapter 8 and beginning of chapter 9 is that Christianity is not just some kind of get out of jail free card when it comes to suffering. It's not, we shouldn't be surprised when we say hey, I put my faith in Christ, why am I going through this difficult time? Isn't Jesus supposed to be my savior? Why isn't he saving me from my own circumstances? That's not what Christianity is. It, it's not some sort of get out of jail free card when it, when, when it comes to suffering. See the reality is suffering is a reality in this world for everyone. You can't avoid it. And, and, and get this, if you haven't yet experienced, if you have been so blessed in your life that you haven't yet dealt with some kind of suffering in this world, well, guess what? Just wait, right? I should end here, that's, like, that's the note that we should end our, our, our messages on, right? That's hope, right? No, suffering is a reality for us all. And, and, here's, and, and yet, it doesn't stop us from being shocked when it comes. We're still surprised. We're still caught off guard. We're still kind of struggling with, why is this coming, right? What have we done wrong to invite suffering? And guess what? Sometimes that's a good question to ask because sometimes our suffering is because of some choices we've made and things we've done. So it's not not a bad question to ask, but sometimes there's nothing you've done wrong. It's not a choice you've made. It's more characteristic of the world that we're living in, this present life where suffering is a reality. So what do we do? We try to limit our sufferings. We, we try to limit the impact that suffering has on our lives or, or we try to ignore it for as long as we can or we, we numb its effects in our lives to help us ignore it. Right? We, we, try to, we, we try to distance ourselves from suffering, get away from it. See, suffering can, can, can stop us in our, our tracks, It can distract us from our goal. It it can make us lose sight of of who we are and whose we are and why we're living and toward what end or what goal we're living toward. But as followers of Jesus, we're not taught to avoid difficulty when it comes. We're not taught to avoid our suffering. We're not taught to ignore it or or to try to fix it, make it go away fast. As followers of Jesus, we're called to focus on faithfully following Jesus through our suffering and to do so by setting our eyes on the future that is ours in eternity with Jesus, the glory to come. Our our suffering, the difficulty, the challenges we face in this life, they're not the period on the end of the sentence of our lives. They're not the the exclamation point. or Like, that's not the end. The end is what Jesus invited Peter and James and John to witness on that mountaintop. A future glory that is unlike anything we can imagine in this world. Maybe you are familiar with the story of Pilgrim's Progress. I grew up, and, and uh, my family, my parents would read us Little Pilgrim's Progress, which is kind of like a... Uh, It's like Pilgrim's Progress for dummies, like it's easier to understand, Uh, because Pilgrim's Progress was written by John Bunyan while he sat in prison, and and it's kind of like that Old English style of, of writing, it's harder to follow, but there's a character in Pilgrim's Progress called Pliable. And pliable was someone who journeyed along with Christian on this, on this story. The, the story, by the way, um, if you haven't heard of it, is kind of this allegorical story of, of living in this life and living toward the celestial city, living toward the glory that is ours in Christ Jesus one day and journeying away from the city of destruction journeying away from sin and death and destruction and to the city of the celestial city. And, and Christian, one time, is invited to go on this journey by this man called Evangelist who invites him to journey to this celestial city, and he, he kind of shows him the way. And uh, along the way, there's one of, these, one of these other people from the city of destruction that decide, hey, I want to go with Christian, and he, you know, he's like, that sounds awesome. He's, he's in it for all the blessings and the benefits of, of what's ahead. It's like, this is going to be great. We're, I can't wait. But then something happens. Christian and pliable find that the journey to the celestial city isn't so easy. It's not an easily marked out path that, that's smooth in all places and without its challenges. And, and, and as soon as they face their first kind of difficult spot, as soon as they face their first challenge, Pliable is kind of left to decide, is this, is this a journey I really want to stay on, right? They, they, the, the two of them are journeying along and they, they fall into this thing called the slough of despond. I mean, if you picture this, this muck and mire, this quicksand place, this place of dis- it's, just, it's gross and disgusting and you know what? It's hard for them to climb out of this spot that they have themselves in. They have to really struggle to get out. Listen to how Pliable handles the pain and the suffering of getting stuck in this slough of despond. He says, at that Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, is this the happiness you told me of all this while? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect? Twixt this and our journey's end. You hear that little old English, twixt between here and our journey's end. And if I get out again, with my life, you shall possess the brave country alone. Is this what you promised me? In other words, he's saying, hey, Christian, you didn't tell me it was going to be hard. You didn't tell me there was going to be challenges and difficulty and suffering in this present life. But then pliable, uh, we're told this about pliable. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the sloth, which was next to his own house. And so away he went and Christian saw him no more. See, I I think we have to wrestle with this idea of of suffering and pain and challenges that we face in this life. The nastiness and and difficulty of our journey threatens to invite us to turn back, to give up, to abandon our first love in Jesus Christ. To say, you know, this isn't what you promised me. I I thought that, that following Jesus was gonna be a, a breeze. I thought if I go to church, if I, if I read my Bible, if I commit myself to the ways of Christ, man, life is gonna be awesome. It's gonna fix all my problems. I, I wonder how many of us have found ourselves in Pliable's place where we face that struggle, that difficulty, that pain in our life And we kinda say, you know what, this isn't what I was expecting. There's gotta be a better answer. And so rather than force our way through this slough of despond and work hard to get to the other side, we just try and struggle one or two steps back and walk away. But see, that's not the life that Jesus invites us into. Suffering and, and, and difficulty is a reality in this life. And it's not something for us to necessarily avoid or or try to undo. In fact, Jesus might be inviting us to press on. And, And in pressing on, see that he's actually wanting to strengthen our faith, to build our character, to prepare us more for that glory that is ahead for us that he's promised us. Many of you are probably familiar with Psalm 23. I want to read it for us. And as I read the 23rd Psalm, I want you to pay attention to this relationship with Jesus, our shepherd, and the, the difficulties we might face. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, green pastures, quiet waters, anointing with oil, cup overflowing, goodness and mercy shall follow me. We hear that promise. And oftentimes as Christians, we think, if that doesn't describe my life right now, I'm doing something wrong, or I've just gotta avoid whatever thing is in my life that's keeping me from seeing my life like this, right? But that's not necessarily always true. Because this Psalm also teaches us that the Lord leads us not around, not over, not under, doesn't avoid it, but through the valley of the shadow of death. And and not only does he lead us through the valley, but it's in the valley that he teaches us not to fear evil, not to fear suffering. We, we learn that he's a faithful and trustworthy shepherd to lead us beyond our circumstances to what he's promised for us. Now, I can't tell you when that promise will come for myself or for you, but I can tell you that it's as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death that we witness and learn that Jesus is a trustworthy shepherd, Church, you're missing a key ingredient in the shaping of your faith if you're trying to ignore the pain and the suffering in your life. If you're trying to numb that, that, that pain and difficulty and suffering in your life, if you're trying to ignore it or, or just kind of pray it away, then you might be missing a key ingredient that God is inviting you to embrace in the shaping of your faith and your spiritual walk with him. So our suffering in this present life is not meaningless. I'll share a quick story uh, from my own family's journey with my sister from these past seven years. Early on in that journey, my brother-in-law and sister heard a sermon preached on Daniel 3. Shortly after that, they heard a song by Mercy Me called Even If. And then shortly after that, they, they were... Early on in this diagnosis, they were going for a hike on the top of the mountain and God just spoke to them in a unique way where they had made a determination that even if God did not heal my sister of this brain tumor, they would not give up, they, were, they would not stop trusting in Jesus and in what he'd promised them. And not only did they make that determination themselves, but they invited our family into that place. Daniel 3 is a passage where uh, Daniel's friends are kind of, they're, they're, they're being threatened with being burned in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace if they don't bow down and worship him. And they say to him, even if our God does not save us, we will not bow down to you and worship you, Nebuchadnezzar. Their faith was secure in the God of Israel. And so for us as a family, we never imagined that we would be in a place where we would hear that my sister's life would end because there's no cure for this brain cancer. But even if God doesn't heal her, which we prayed for until the very end, even if God doesn't heal her, we will not abandon our faith in him. Now, I could, I could stand up here and preach all about that and tell you, yeah, let's all do that, let's all do that. But I'll say this. I don't know that I truly learned to believe that until I was walking in this chapter in our family's life and learned what it actually means to say, I'm not going to abandon my faith. Even in those moments where I wanted to so bad, I was willing to do anything to have more time with my sister. But to be, but to be in such a determined place to, to cling to our faith in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, church we need to learn to look at the, the suffering in our life and realize God has a purpose for it. It is not meaningless. It is the space in which we can learn to trust him to shepherd us and lead us through the valley. And he knows how difficult that suffering truly is. It's not meaningless, it's purposeful, and, and yet it's also something that he realizes he needs to give us the encouragement of knowing what is ahead for us on the other side of this suffering. And so Jesus wanted his disciples to witness his transfiguration so that they might be encouraged. So that when after Jesus had died and risen again, that they might be encouraged to realize that their own suffering is not without meaning, but has great purpose. And that the glory that that they witnessed on that mountaintop was, there, was the glory that was promised to them as they persevered through their tra- the challenges and the suffering that they faced in this life. So Jesus, Jesus wanted to give them a taste, a taste of eternity, to whet their appetite, a little preview, a taste test of what was to come. Growing up, I, I used to love to go to my grandma's house for dinner, and she, she would make this incredible roast with, with roasted onions and mashed potatoes, but my favorite part of the whole meal was the gravy. I could, I could swim in that gravy, right? Now, I couldn't tell you how she made it, but I could tell you how she finished it because she would take that gravy and simmer it on the stove and slowly whisk in salt and pepper until it had kind of come to that taste that was just right. And, and this will probably come as no surprise to you, but I prided myself in being her number one taste tester when it came to the gravy, right? Like, I, I'm off playing, but as soon as I knew the gravy was simmering, I was right next to her. I was, I was at her hip in the kitchen next to her waiting for her to, to hand me the spoon to taste it. And, and, but here's my point. Those preview tastes of the gravy not only made me more hungry for the meal but they kept me focused on the future and gave me reason to push through my hunger, waiting for it to finish, right? Like when I tasted that gravy, I, I knew, oh, this is going to be good. That was delicious. This, what's to come is going to be even better, right? See, in the same way, Jesus' transfiguration in front of Peter and James and John was meant to be that, that, that preview taste of eternity, to kind of whet their appetite and keep their focus on that whole meal that was coming, the glory that was promised to them that was to come, to help them endure and perse- persevere through their challenges and sufferings, that, that the, the suffering of this present life, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. Right, Peter's reaction wasn't that strange, actually. He had tasted what Jesus was showing. He was like, This is good. Let's set up three tabernacles. Let's, let's stay here. This, I don't want to leave here. But Jesus' is like, No, that's, this is just a preview, Peter. This is just, this is just meant to, to give you that, to develop that hunger in you for eternity. See, church, God, God has promised us glory. And this glory is not of our own making. Right? This, is, this is not a, the perfect life that we can build for ourselves. This is, this is not a, a, a life free from pain that we can be responsible for achieving or accomplishing. This is a, a free gift that's showered upon us because Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the son of man who realized it was necessary that he suffer and be rejected and killed and, and rise again, it, it was, it's a free gift that we're given because of what he has done on our behalf. We get a sense of this longing for the glory that God offers us in different ways. But let me encourage you that as we think about these, this longing, as we think about what has been promised to us, that we would actually think about how do we develop that longing? How do I taste eternity and, and hunger for it more, long for it more, let it, let it be the thing that sets the course of my life? See, when we, we, we get a sense of this longing when we hear that God will say of us, well done, and good, good and faithful servant. Isn't there something in you that stirs when we read that passage and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant? And you, in the, even in the back of your mind, don't you say, Man, I wanna hear that. I want someone to say that to me. I want someone to to look at me in the eye and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, guess what? That's your longing for eternity. That's your longing for the glory that Jesus promises us. That's right and good. You you get a sense of of longing for this glory in, in the story of the prodigal son. How many of you, when we read through that story, something stirs in you when the father is described as, as looking on the porch and seeing his son from a, a far off distance and starts running toward his son and throws his arms around him and embraces him, how many of you have felt that stirring in your heart that think, oh, that's good. I, I, want, I want God to do that for me. I, I want to I believe that God is standing on the porch of heaven looking for me, waiting for me, running to me and embracing me. That's a longing for eternity. That's a longing for the promise of glory that Jesus offers us. A gift that is not earned or achieved, but poured out on us. Because Jesus, the Son of Man, the Christ, was also the Son of Man who found it necessary to suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. I think we could even find our longing for glory in the the negative space or the opposite space of, of loneliness because loneliness shows us something too, doesn't it? It shows us that we long for relationship and not just any relationship, but ultimately a relationship where we're fully known and fully loved. Church, if you even have a sense of that loneliness, of not just the loneliness for God, but a loneliness in this life, then let me tell you, that is a taste of your longing for eternity, a longing for the glory that is promised to us, a place where we will stand with Jesus, where he fully knows us and fully loves us. And so I just, I wanna challenge you this morning, church, to pay attention to this desire, We don't get the privilege of standing on a mountaintop and seeing what Peter, James, and John saw, right? Like there's nothing I could say to accurately describe this scene so that you would feel right now what they felt when they stood there. But I could tell you that we can spend our lives focused on cultivating that longing in two very specific ways. I wanna challenge you to make a priority. I mean, it's it's pretty broad, and you'll probably roll your eyes because this what every pastor says. But, but, but I want to challenge you to, to 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 seek after this longing, to seek after the the glory that God has offered us, and 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 trust that it's not going to be withheld. God is not a miserly God. He wants to give you and cultivate this longing in your heart, so you long for it more and more and more, and, and, and so. I want to encourage you to do two very specific things that allows us to, to kind of cultivate that feeling that Peter, James, and John would have felt in seeing Jesus transfigured on that mountainside. In 2024, I want you to build spaces of worship and pay attention to the practice of discipleship in your life. Build spaces of your worship and and, and think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in 2024. These two things, I promise you, will cultivate that longing you have for eternity. The longing you have for God, the glory that that has been promised to you. And it will shape the way you live your life. In, In Mark 9 verse 7, God overshadows the group with a cloud and from within the cloud he declares this is my beloved son listen to him the word is literally hear him church a disciple of Jesus is simply a lifelong learner of Jesus a lifelong student and we can't be a lifelong student of Jesus if we stop hearing him speak into our lives Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 tells us, Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In our passage in Mark 9, after Jesus says, this is my beloved son, hear him, listen to him, what happens? Moses and Elijah, poof, they're gone. Jesus only remains God has spoken to us and is speaking to us. The question isn't, is God still speaking? The question is, are you hearing Jesus speak? Paul says in Romans that the gospel of Jesus is the power of God for salvation. So my question for you this morning is, are you, are you allowing this powerful gospel, which Jesus proclaims in the New Testament and throughout the Bible, are you allowing this powerful gospel to have an influence in your life? Is it actually impacting your, your, your relationships? Does it shape your marriage? Does it shape your relationship with your neighbor in your neighborhood? Is it, is it giving you wisdom and guidance and strength to, to relate to your coworker, to, to share more than just this cursory surface level relationship, but to talk about deep things with them? Does the gospel ha- have a say in how you spend your time and your talent and your treasures in this life? Becoming a, a lifelong student of Jesus requires that we listen to him and not just hear what he's saying, but let his words dig down deep into your life and change you from the inside out to have power in your life. This is, this, this, this is how, this, this is how the, God will develop in us this longing what may feel like a little taste test race right now of, uh, of a longing to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. That craving will build and build and build to the point where you cannot wait for God to welcome you home into eternity, right? But that, that comes as we spend our lives listening to Jesus, focusing on what he has to say. So pick up a Bible, if you, if you don't have one, you can, you, you, can, you can take one from the pew or just buy one on Amazon. Pick up a Bible. If, if you already have a Bible, pick out a reading plan. That's not a mystery. There's lots of reading plans out there. If you already have a Bible reading plan, find someone to read the plan with you. Journey with them. You guys can share reflections on what you read that day or that week. Find someone to read through the Bible with you. Join a Bible study. We've got Bible studies for youth on Sunday afternoons, women throughout the week in numerous places, men on Thursday morning. We just started an adult discipleship class on Sunday mornings at 8.30 saying, let's run. Like talking about this life of discipleship and more. It's a great space to study the Bible with other people to just hear Jesus. And in hearing Jesus, let his word transform you. So we gotta hear him, church. That's the first thing. The second thing, we gotta, we gotta learn what it means to worship him. And, and, and to recognize that we are a being created to worship. We're all worshiping something. You may, you may think, oh, it's not me. I don't, I'm not really a worshiper. I, you know, I, I, I don't I don't have the best singing voice or or whatever. Everyone worships something. You are a soul. You're not just a physical body, you have a you have a heart and a mind, a will, and you crave, desire things. The funny thing is, we all worship something, but we also don't all know what we're worshiping, but the reality is, whatever we worship, that's shaping us, that's forming us. And so, I, I wanna encourage us to worship God, worship Jesus, build practices of worship into your daily life. It will help you learn to be a worshiper of the God who created you. You may remember from our our passage that that, that Peter wanted to set up three tabernacles, right? He says, let's set up three tents, one for you, Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. Uh, His idea may have been wrong, right? But his desire wasn't off the mark. His desire was dead on. See, a a, a tabernacle, as, as I mentioned, is a place of worship for the people of God to meet with God and to be in his presence, it was a place to develop a desire for God and to hear more of what his, what his promises and plans are for his life and to remember that he is a God who has not abandoned us but will lead us through the valley of the shadow of darkness. Right? At Christmas time, we we love the idea of being in the presence of God. We love worshiping Emmanuel, which means God with us. This idea that God actually came to earth to be with us, we love that idea. But do we actually seek out these spaces to be with the God who came to this earth to be with us? do Do we participate in our faith community? I know I'm speaking to a room full of people who are here this morning, right? But dare I say we come here weekly That we make it a part of our regular routine, that that we want to be here not just once a a week or once a, a month, but every Sunday morning. Gather with the people of God. You know what? My heart is encouraged when we're together, not because I'm the pastor, but because I'm a part of the body of Christ, and I need to worship with other followers of Christ. It's a place where our hearts are formed to be like his, so do, we, do we participate in our faith community regularly? Do we, do we set up a, a special place in our homes to meet with God apart from distraction? I'm not talking about a shrine here. I'm talking about, do you have a place that you look to that's away from the TV, away from your phone, away from the people uh, that you might share a space with where you can just sit with God and enjoy a place of solitude with him and recognize this is a place you've carved out to be with him? In, in, in seminary, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment, and, but the one cool thing about this apartment was it had a walk-in closet. I mean, I, I made my own little prayer closet in that walk-in closet, and it was awesome, right? I, I, I shut the door to my bedroom. I shut the door to the closet. I, I felt like, man, I, I've gotten away from some things. I'm with God. I am able to notice it. Now, don't get me wrong. I know God's with, with me wherever I go, but... I'm able to pay attention to the fact that God is with me when I'm in that place where I've kind of stepped apart. And and you know what? In that place where I'm spending time with God, communing with Him, praying, it's worship. It's adoring Him. It's learning to, to, to love Him for who He is. So do we set that Place apart. do we set apart time to be with him? Not just 15 minutes in the morning before our day gets going, but what what does it look like for us to devote time to him? Devote time and attention. Church, what is it you worship? Because what you worship and long for is shaping you right now. Do you long for eternity? Do you long for the, the glory and the eternity that is promised to you through Jesus Christ? Or do you find yourself unknowingly even, worshiping the things of this world. See, Jesus invites us along with Peter and James and John to look upon his transfiguration and find hope. Hope in the glory that's promised us beyond the the difficulties that make up this world. And, And this is the thing about our future. Our future is secure in Jesus Christ, the man who suffered and bled and died and rose again that we might Rise to glory with him. Let me close with this last thought from 2 Corinthians chapter four. Paul writes, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Church, look at the transformation and remember the glory that is beyond this present life. No matter how deep the suffering is, it will not last and it will not crush us. It will not drive us to despair. It will not make us forsake or, 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 and it will not destroy us. Why? Because he who calls you to this life, he who, who calls you to the life of faithfulness, walking with him in this life and into eternity and into glory, he who calls you to this life is faithful to bring you to his eternal purposes. Let me pray. Father God, we do thank you that, uh, Lord, not only that.